So let's turn to Matthew chapter 1 and stand for the reading of God's Word. Matthew 1, 18 through 23. This is the word of the Lord, it is eternally true. Now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit. And Joseph, her husband, being a righteous man and not wanting to disgrace her, planned to send her away secretly. But when he had considered this, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the child who has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Now all this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, behold, the virgin shall be with child, and shall bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which translated means God with us. This is the word of the Lord. Be seated. Well, I always, I, I, I say this every time we come to Christmas celebration and half the time when we come to Easter celebrations, there's a, there's a war for your hearts going on and it's between treacly junk and the truth of the Word of God. It's between, um, you know, uh, claymation myths and the truth of the Word of God. More deeply, it's between uh, the pull of nostalgia and the truth of God's Word. And so, I always feel like the work that I have to do as a pastor around Christmas is is, um, just get everybody focused on the right things, okay? Get, Get us... Get our minds focused, and, and it's a sad thing that I have to do that because what we focus on is infinitely more beautiful and compelling than claymation and Black Friday sales and consumerism and Santa. You know, but, but we, you know, so there I go again saying it. And so I hope, I hope you're doing, I hope you feel that tension though. And you're like, oh man, it's so easy for me to get sucked into these fun things. And, and it's not, I wouldn't have any problem. I don't have any problem with you doing, having family traditions and doing, you know, decorate the cookies and they can be in the shape of reindeer. I don't care. 
do all of that, but if we could do it without losing focus on the incarnation of God. Right? We, we ought to be awing at this and like, you know, excited to tell one another about, you know, what we had read about the incarnation of, of Almighty God as a man. We should just be like running to tell people with joy about those things, but we're distracted by Rudolph. I, it could get embarrassing. I mean, I could mention other things and songs that we all like that should go in the trash bin. But that's that. There's but there's a there's a warfare here, and this is it's not um, it's not insignificant. Uh, we want to focus our minds on the glory of the incarnation of the Son of God, and it is no uh, it's no uh, coincidence. It's it should have been expected that all kinds of counterfeits would arise through the ages to sort of blunt that message by those who hate God, right? I mean, it's, it's all counterfeits. Counterfeits arise here and there. That's the work of the evil one. He makes counterfeits. He himself is a counterfeit angel. Veils himself in, a, you know, in light. And so, yeah, counterfeits are going to be coming up, but, but let's give up the counterfeit for a moment and think about the reality of the incarnation of the Son of God. I always like to bring up Augustine's poem on the incarnation because it just encapsulates the, the unfathomable glory of God becoming man. Augustine wrote, man's maker was made man that he, ruler of the stars, might nurse at his mother's breast, that the bread might hunger, the fountain thirst, the light sleep, the way be tired on its journey, and that the truth might be accused of false witness, the teacher be beaten with whips, the foundation be suspended on wood, that strength might grow weak, that the healer might be wounded. And that life might die. And so as we contemplate what Scripture teaches about the second person of the triune God being born of a woman, our minds should just be boggled. Boggled. Bavink wrote the following, he said, Christ the incarnate word is the central fact of the entire history of the world. Christ in the flesh is the central fact of the entire history of the world. The incarnation should be capturing your hearts at this time of year, not the infinitely less beautiful and unimaginative notions of Flying reindeers and elves and ugly sweaters, okay? The Son of God, the Son of God, the eternal second person of the Trinity, the Word, became man or took to himself humanity for the purpose of waging a final battle against the world, the flesh, and the devil. That would result in 
sin-enslaved dead people being ushered into an eternal dwelling place where the Lamb is the light and the streets are made of gold and the mood is always peace and rest. And somehow it still takes Nat King Cole singing about chestnuts roasting on an open fire for us to get in the Christmas spirit. Ugh, it's pathetic. I am pathetic. We're playing with mud pies, brothers and sisters, and they don't taste good. We must think about the incarnation of the Son of God. This is the glorious truth that we should shout loudly during our celebrations, right? All throughout the year, not just in December, but because because everything good rests in this reality that the Son of God took on human flesh, and dwelled among us. We should be thinking these things. How is it that one who was, before there was material in the universe, could be encompassed by a woman, resting within her womb, right, growing from a single cell to a full-grown man, the one who existed before there was material. We should be thinking, how could he who has no beginning or ends, he who is only and always everywhere present, be enfleshed and dwell among us? How could this holy God live within a fallen world, everywhere, affected and effaced by sin, and have to feel the consequences of the fall by such things as being hungry? And being tempted. How could the pre-existent Son of God assume human nature and take to Himself human flesh and blood? How could the eternal Son of God have veins that pumped blood? And He still has those veins pumping blood. Well, the Scripture says very little about the how of the Incarnation, does it? It just doesn't give us very much. We don't, we, don't know, we don't know but a few phrases from that. The how of deity adding humanity, the how of the Son of God's conception in the womb by the Virgin. The Gospel of Mark does not mention it at all. All we have are a few Old Testament prophecies, like Isaiah 7 about the virgin conceiving, and the, which was quoted in the Matthew passage we read, and the very short matter of the fact, the matter of fact description of what happened uh, in the Gospels of Matthew, Luke, and John, and a few other places in, in the letters of Paul and the letters of John, Philippians 2.8, Galatians 4.4. 4. But what we learn about the how of the incarnation is stated very simply like this. The Holy Spirit will come upon you, Mary, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And for that reason, the Holy Child shall be called the Son of God. And then in Matthew, we just read, before they came together, Joseph and Mary, she was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit. That's all we learn. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And then in Philippians, although he existed in the form of God, he did not regard equality with God. Uh, God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself 
taking the form of a slave and being made in the likeness of men. I mean, this, this is basically what we get about the how. How did the spirits and the, and the egg of Mary do that? <laughs> but the why of the incarnation is elaborated upon all over in the Scriptures. In a nutshell, we learn from Scripture that the fall of man into sin made the incarnation of the Word of God absolutely necessary. How this works out in the decrees of God, you know, we can leave that to another day. Romans 8.19, For as through the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, even so through the obedience of the one, the many will be made righteous. And the obedience of Jesus is certainly on display in his humble act of taking on the likeness of sinful flesh. His incarnation. His putting on meat. The meat of humanity. But it's more than meat. It's mind. It's soul. It's everything that you are as a man. But note that it is in regard to the sinfulness of man that the obedience of Jesus was necessary. What we learn from Scripture is that God does not overlook sin. He doesn't merely overlook sin, but absolutely, absolutely deals with it down to the, the tiniest drop of sin. He will deal with even that. He does not say, let's just do a do-over does not, but he makes what was broken whole, and, and that through the work of the Son of God. God is a God who brings light out of darkness, who fixes that which was broken, who sets things straight that were, that without corrupting his own character. He will be just and the one who justifies, right? And think about this fact. When man sinned, and a mediator was necessary, the person of the Son was not immediately incarnated. He just, it didn't have, like, after the fall, you would think that God would then be like, okay, Jesus, it's time. You're taking on the flesh, you're going to redeem mankind so that this doesn't spin off into all violence everywhere. But God doesn't do that, right? God could have done that, but instead he made the incarnation of the person of the Son of God the subject of thousands of years of prophecy. Oh, man. So the incarnation is as much about that fulfillment of prophecy as, as anything else, but, but it was because God waited, and prophet after prophet after prophet after prophet came and said, this is coming, this is coming, this is coming. He's coming. The Messiah's coming. The Messiah's coming. And then <coughs> he comes. And so there was this incredible longing that was created by, by God's delay of the incarnation. There was anticipation created, and it was not until the fullness of time, that's what it's called in the book of Galatians, right? It was not until the fullness of time that Christ took on the flesh. So the incarnation is as much about revelation as it is about Trinitarian mysteries and the hypostatic union. 
Now, it's worth noting that even from the beginning of the church, there were those who said that Jesus did not become a man. You know, that, that heresy was off and running really quickly. Um, that he didn't become a man. Some said he didn't become a man, that he didn't have flesh, that he only seemed to have such fleshliness. And all of that is heresy, and it's alive and well today. There are those who hold to the same sorts of things as was held in the first century. And we see it opposed in a nutshell in John's first epistle. He warns of those who were teaching such things in the fourth chapter. He says, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but rest, but, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. Because many false prophets have gone out into the world, and by this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. For many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not acknowledge Jesus Christ as coming in the flesh. This is the deceiver and the antichrist. Okay? In the flesh, right? It's stated there twice. In the flesh. If you deny that Jesus really took on humanity, you are a heretic marked out for damnation. Okay? It's a non-negotiable doctrine here. 100% God, 100% man. Jesus Christ has come in the flesh. That is Christian doctrine. To deny that is to deny Scripture's teaching, but it is to lose a whole lot of precious comforts from Scripture as well. The early church condemned this heresy with this summary of their teaching. What is not assumed is not saved. If Jesus didn't assume human flesh, then humanity cannot be saved. What is not assumed cannot be saved. That's how they opposed those heresies. That was their conclusion. What is not assumed is not saved. And so you guys want to look to Jesus for your salvation, but He doesn't even represent you. He's not one of you. Unless He's a man. And then He has assumed humanity, and humanity is saved. 1 Timothy 2.5, for there is one God and one mediator also between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. Do you notice that it says the man there? The man, Christ Jesus. Focusing on his humanity. So let's zoom in a little bit. The fall and sin is the backdrop. The fall, the cataclysmic fall of mankind into sin is the backdrop for Jesus' incarnation. It gives us the big picture of why. What are some of the precious truths that flow from the, the person of the Son taking on human flesh? One, the incarnation made the Son of God one of the human race. The philosophers, if you've read them, treat God as if it were a concept, a pure form of logic, a power or force that is perfect but very distant, perfect but oh, just so distant as to be unknowable. Scripture teaches that God is wisdom 
perfect, transcendent. Yes, but it also clearly teaches us that he is personal. He's personal. And nowhere do we learn that more than in the incarnation of the second person of the Trinity. How much more imminent and intimate could God get with his creatures than through an incarnation? It is impossible to conceive of some more humble act meant to show us, right, that, that he loves mankind. I mean, it's John 3.16, right? God so loved the world that he gave his son. He gave his son. Behold, the virgin shall be with child and shall bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which translated means God with us. Now that, that should, every time you hear that, that name, Emmanuel, and, and you hear God with us, you should be just like, like, I can't compute it. Like, it's too great for me. I, I don't. What does this mean? That the one, the one who existed before there were any stars in the sky, the one who, is, who has always been, who transcends time, who created time so that we could live within it, right? So that we could understand our being or, or something. He came and lived among us. So many people prefer that God of the philosophers, don't they? That God of the philosophers is pristine and packaged very nicely, but not at all helpful in dealing with the disaster of sin. Right? Oh, if you, I mean, if you have a positive view about the nature of man and delude yourself with thinking man is basically good-natured, contrary to every devastating evidence of that not being the case, which is your own sinfulness, which you know very well. Not to mention network news and wars and crimes and your thoughts. Then an, then an only transcendent and distant concept is all you really think you need. You may then live like those Athenians, right, who, who being deluded about their own nature, like to spend their time on nothing other than than telling or hearing something new. We've heard that before. Give us something new. Give us something sparkly and new. Some thought that we haven't, haven't yet had. But the God of the philosophers is not the living and true God. The living and true God is the one who said, Right as he was forming man, let us make man in our image according to our likeness and let them rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And then, not shooting off to some cosmic office in the distant part of the universe, right, in the pure space of reason and logic, God made a garden for man and woman a garden in which he walked together with them in the cool of the day. Isn't that beautiful? If you want, I'll take the God that walks next to his creation a million trillion times more than I take that God of pure pristine logic who's locked up in a, a, an office on the other side of the universe. 
We know that's true. The unbeliever even knows that's true. Right? The unbeliever knows there's a God and that, that he's powerful, right? Romans 1, but he just suppresses that truth in unrighteousness, right? Even unbelievers acknowledge that, and yet people go after this. They, they want concepts. I mean, how many times do I have to hear Elon Musk talk about the simulation? That's his worldview. Do you, do you get that? He thinks there's, there's a higher being put us in an experiment. Now, the kind of intimacy we have with God, that kind of love, that kind of attention from Him is amazing, isn't it? Well, take that intimacy and love and attention up a thousand notches, and you have a good value for the incarnation of the Son of God. The Son of God became one of the human race. He entered into the canvas of the world that He Himself had painted. The incarnation shows that man has been kept as the apple of God's eye. That man is precious to him. That man is the height and center and focus of God's everlasting love. Jesus did not become a cow. Jesus did not become a star. Jesus did not become a tree. He did not become a building or a temple. He did not become a mathematical equation. He did not become a poem or a painting. He did not become just a heart or a brain or just a spirit or just a soul. He became a man. A man. Mind, heart, soul. Body. The eternal and, listen, unchangeable second person of the Trinity assumed a human nature. The unchangeable second person of the Trinity assumed a human nature. Since the incarnation, He is one person, the Son, Jesus Christ, with two natures, a divine and human nature. Human nature was added to an eternal and unchangeable divine Son. It boggles the mind. And how precious is the truth. The Son of God took on the likeness of sinful flesh and all the benefits of that act of humble love are mankind's to feast on eternally. They are ours to enjoy and to marvel at, right? And to, and to just settle into, to mull over in our heads. But the weather outside is frightful. And the fire is so delightful. Let it snow, let it snow, let it snow. What do we gain because God became one of the human race? Well, first we gain sympathy from God. Sympathy from God Almighty as He lives as our high priest. His love for us is not just theoretical, but it is experiential and sympathetic. That's mind-boggling, right? That Jesus is sympathetic to us, right? For since He Himself was tempted in that which He has suffered, He is able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. 
Yes. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. That incarnation, that, 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 that brought with it sympathy for us. What do we gain because God became one of the human race? Second one, an example and pattern for our lives. He showed us what it is to know God and love God. Jesus, God himself, showed us what it is to know God and love God. Not just with words, but with actions. By doing himself what he requires of us. He did everything he requires of us himself. By this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. The one who says, I have come to know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him, the love of God has truly been perfected. By this we know that we are in him. The one who says he abides in him ought himself to walk in the same manner as he walked. So we have this example. We have this example of godliness, of of uh, of what our ambition really should be. Also, he gave us an example of what it means to submit to authority. Think of that. Yes, the Father and the Son, the first and second persons, are equal in power and glory, but the Father is not the Son, and the Son is not the Father. The Father did the sending, the Son was sent. That differentiation between the Father and Son precedes the Incarnation, and the Incarnation follows that implicit divine order. In other words, in the Incarnation, we come to understand that the Son lives to carry out the will of the Father. And although He exists in the form of God, Did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a slave and being made in the likeness of men. And so, Jesus has given all of us an example of submission. Submission to authority. A good and honoring and godly submission to authority. And we need a good example of that, don't we? I need it. You need it. We all need that good example of that because we find it hard to live for others and to honor authorities with our obedience. And we find it very difficult to know our own station. We've been raised to be the emperor of the world. Each one of us individually. We're like our own. We're all emperors of the world. They used to talk about how men had different stations. You know, and, and it was good and godly to know your station. But today we can't talk about that because we talk about radical egalitarianism and all we're trying to do is stamp everybody down to the same level. Right? But, but authority and submission is real. It's a calling for all of us and Jesus showed us how to do it in a godly way. The incarnation... And even what precedes the incarnation is 
in the necessity of the Son being incarnated instead of the Father, gives us all the example we need, right? What else do we gain because God became one of the human race? The ennobling truth that Jesus will forever be a man. Have you stopped and thought about that? The ennobling truth that Jesus will always be a man. Jesus did not just temporarily become a man. He forever added humanity, assumed humanity to deity in one person. When we stand in the presence of God, we will see Jesus, the God-man. They also said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into the sky? This Jesus who has been taken up from you into heaven will come in just the same way as you have watched him go into heaven. He's coming back as he was. Is that not an incomprehensible love. We think it quite satisfying and joyful when our friends start liking the things we like. The camaraderie of holding things in common, of, of you know, going crazy over the new uh, release of this or that band or film, of relishing the taste of, you know, freshly roasted coffee beans that aren't decaffeinated. Of, of our love together as husband and wife producing children. The fruitfulness of the marriage bed, right? But here we see the Son of God not just holding things in common with His creatures, but as Scripture says, in Him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. He does not just hold things in common, but He became what we are. It's stupendous. The incarnation made it possible for a representative head of the human race, the Son of God, to be obedient to God after the first representative head, Adam, failed to be obedient. So the whole incarnation, this whole, this is a turning over of, of the, the, the sin of man. God fashioned this world in such a way that headship, representative headship would govern it. In Adam, we were all represented, right? And so in Adam, we all fell. But now that Jesus has come as the second Adam, not just in name, but in, in body, in very incarnation, we have a new representative. Paul in Romans says, So then, as through one transgression there resulted condemnation to all men, even so, through one act of righteousness, there resulted justification of life to all men. For as through the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, even so, through the, one, through the obedience of the one, the many will be made righteous. <coughs> Do you realize the significance of this? A man was perfectly obedient to God, and he's now your representative. He now represents the new humanity, the church, the chosen from the mass of sinful humanity. Without the incarnation, the whole process would have been a do-over or a sham, a false transaction, a rewriting of the world's order. Jesus, the Son of Man and Son of God, happily obeyed where the first Adam proudly rebelled. Jesus fixed and conquered and triumphed over death where the first Adam broke and compromised and died. And because he did this as a man, Jesus, he represents you. 
There is no salvation without representation. Also, the incarnation allowed for a true mediator between God and man. Closely related to the previous one in, the, in mediating that, that um, in being the first, that federal headship, is this one. Jesus Christ, by virtue of his incarnation, represents mankind to God as a mediator. Calvin said, Consider how important was the office of the mediator to so restore us to God's grace that we who belonged to the lost race of Adam should become God's children and heirs of his kingdom? Who could have done this had not the Son of God himself been made man and taken what was ours in order to give us what was his, making ours by grace what was his by nature? And so the incarnation provided a man to die as our sin substitute and the incarnation provided a righteous man to live as our righteous substitute. For there is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all the testimony given at the proper time. That glorious hymn of praise to Jesus is all about his work as the God-man. And Colossians 1.19 says this, For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him, And through him to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of his cross, through him I say whether things on earth or things in heaven. Note that it was blood, the real blood of a real man that propitiated God and made peace for you. Jesus Christ as the mediator of a covenant ratified by his blood, not the blood of bulls and goats, had to be a man. He had to take on the flesh so that he could truly mediate between God and us. And this is why why Scripture and our hymns constantly mention his blood. The early church thought that we were cannibals. Blood. Which I might add, he did not possess before his incarnation. He didn't have it. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were formerly were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Right? But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things to come, he entered through the greater and the more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this creation, and not through the blood of goats and calves, but through his own blood. He entered the holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. For you have not come to a mountain that can be touched into a blazing fire, into darkness and gloom and whirlwind, into the blast of a trumpet and the sound of words which sound was such that those who heard begged that no further word be spoken to them, for they could not bear the command, if even a beast touches the mountain, it will be stoned. And so terrible was the sight that Moses said, I'm full of fear and trembling. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to myriads of angels, and to the general assembly of the church of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood, which speaks better than the blood of Abel. 
So the incarnation of the Son of God is so much more than the superficialities that now mark our celebrations this time of year. There are messages here and there about the wonder of the babe in the manger, and and there are important things to be said by giving gifts and being generous with one another, but we must not lose sight of the fact that without the incarnation, we would all be left to represent ourselves before God without the perfect humanity, representative headship, and blood-drenched mediation of Jesus Christ, and God would crush us. God would say, out of my presence, now. And if that were so, eternal life would be an impossible destination. A holy God would be pleased to crush us. Instead, Jesus became a man for the purpose of waging a final battle against the world, the flesh, and the devil that would result in his sin-enslaved and dead people being ushered into an eternal dwelling place where the Lamb is the light and the streets are made of gold and the mood is always peace. Amen. 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 Let's pray. Father, we give you thanks for your Son and His incarnation, His obedience to you, His, his selflessness and laying down His life while we were still sinners. And Lord, we rejoice. We rejoice to think about this pivotal moment in all of history during this time of year. And we pray, Father, that, that we would uh, truly, truly rejoice in the incarnation of Christ. That we would mull it over in our heads and you would bless all of our thoughts and meditations. Lord, help us in this. May we honor you. May we, may we be in awe of the right things and enjoy the right things by your Spirit. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.